Good morning. Welcome to the December 8, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Today we have Keith Danner, UCI lecturer and labor activist with the University Council of the American Teachers Foundation, who will take up one, Friedrichs versus the California Teachers Association, a case to be heard next month before the U.S. Supreme Court, and two, the status of lecturers as a particular class of members of UCI's faculty. Returning to the show for the second time in the second half, or not the second time, for many times, he's coming back on our second half, Charlie Bleck, Orange County Chair of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence. A good deal of carnage has occurred since his last appearance in May. He brings his earnest cool to the debate on the progress, or the lack of it, toward reducing gun deaths. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest today is Keith Danner, a lecturer in composition at the University of California, Irvine. A longtime labor activist, he's interested in grassroots organizing of all kinds, from stopping climate change, and we try to stop it on the show too, and uh, to winning a better contract for workers at UC, the whole UC system. He earned his bachelor's at Bucknell University and his PhD at UC Riverside. He joins me in studio today to take to get a great deal done to take up the case before the Supreme Court Friedrichs versus the California Teachers Association and employment status of lecturers, as I said earlier, as a particular class of faculty. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Keith Danner. Thanks very much, Claudia. I'm that's glad to be here today. Well, first Let's have you lay out the case to be heard before the Supreme Court. I believe it will be on January 16th. They will hear oral arguments. That is Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. Rebecca Friedrichs, the poster lady, the name of, of the leading plaintiff. She's a 28-year-old veteran of primary school education in, folks, you guessed it, in Orange County. She's joined by a group of 10 teachers and a teacher's group Christian Educators Association, and this legal challenge is underwritten by the Center for Individual Rights to overturn this uh, the Abood decision, which is uh, some time off. So, uh, the plaint. So, tell us a, a bit about what's what's what we're in for with this case. Well, there are a couple of things that I think are important to talk about with the Friedrichs decision or the Friedrichs case itself. First of all, what are the issues that are at stake for organized labor and for working class people in the United States? Second of all, who exactly is behind this? Who is pushing it? And what are their real purposes as opposed to what are their stated purposes? And then third, what are the things that we can do as students, as workers, in order to fight back against this kind of offensive against working class rights? The Friedrichs case is, as you said, something that hopes to overturn what's called the Abood decision. The Abood decision was a 1977 decision which basically said, look, unions are required, they are required to defend their members no matter what. So, for example, if you disagree politically with one of your members and your member has a grievance, as a union you have to defend that person. We had a case like this when I was at UC Riverside, and there was a particularly, frankly, creepy member, and he, um, you know, was extremely sexist, 
but he had a grievance against his working conditions and we defended him vigorously and we had to and I'm glad that we did even though did you talk to him about his creepiness though I'm saying yeah we're representing you but not the whole package yeah I mean we, we weren't defending obviously him against uh, sexual harassment right that would be something different but there was a separate issue okay and we are required to do that and we should do that and you raise a good point of course you then also raise the issue of that person's sexism with them, right? This is part of solidarity. Solidarity means you're in solidarity with people who possibly don't agree with you on every single issue or possibly who you have to actually argue with in order to raise their level of consciousness. Okay, so back to the, the case. Yeah, well, the case has been put forth by a group called the Center for Individual Rights. And the Center for Individual Rights is a group that is a right-wing organization, and they, what they, you know, they try to sort of try to package it in a way in which it sounds good. Individual rights. Who could be opposed to such a thing? But really, what they're, they're historically, what they've been interested in doing is a. Um, uh, attacking um, civil rights issues. So, for example, they have, have had a series of cases in Texas and elsewhere where they've been trying to undermine affirmative action. They've been key behind the attack on the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It's just part of their whole background. Other supporters um, of the Friedrichs case itself include law groups like the Pacific Foundation, who libertarian group who are extremely pro-coal. So they are you know, people who are in our way when we're trying to fight against climate change. The Friedrichs case basically wants to turn the entire country into a right-to-work state. Now, what does that mean? What is a right-to-work state? Right now, I think we have about half. Half of, yeah. California is the half that still uh, protects the agency fees. We're going to break that up down a little bit more. But so where California is with the 25 that still are uh, supporting the, the union efforts, that, you know, it's legal to have uh, union institutions, and, and then the other half are uh, right-to-work states. So obviously, uh, what does it mean, right-to-work? To me, I first hear the phrase right-to-work, and I think, oh, that sounds good. You mean if I want to have a job, part of basic human dignity, I'm going to have one? I have the right to have a job? That's not what it means. What it means is that you, if you live in a right-to-work state, you are basically on your own. You, if you want to negotiate some kind of increase in your wages or some kind of increase in your benefits, you are, you're not having the advantage of being able to combine with other working class people in order to negotiate. There's a, always, I always think of it as like a level playing field. It's not undue leverage, the union unit. It's about having a level playing field to negotiate a contract. You can't do that if you are a one person versus one corporate entity. That's entirely true. I mean, there are two things I think to say about this. One is just the difference between the wages and the overall compensation package in regions in the United States where there are more right-to-work states. So if we take, for example, in the South and even parts of the Midwest, right. um, there are many right-to-work states and many more in the Midwest than there used to be. The South was the first place, but now there are many more than there used to be. In those states, um, the wages, inflation-adjusted wage, uh, adjusted wages are fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars less per year 
um, on average. And so that's obviously something that makes people suffer. You know, that, that money can be, at a particular wage level, extremely significant. That's dollar amounts, is it? But th- uh, can you tell us, like, in overall compensation packages, is there a... a yeah, are there I mean, that's po- in terms component? of dollar amounts, but... Uh, there the could Wa- be more. Yeah, I mean, the Wall Street Journal, I mean, it is... Uh, it, the other studies show that right-to-work states, people are less likely to have a pension. They are less likely to have satisfactory health care that may have shifted some since uh, the passage of the American, you know, Affordable Care Act, Affordable Care Act. Um, But they are and they're also less likely to have people who are able to be socially mobile. That is to say, in the right to work states, you have situation where people are more likely if they are if they start out uh, poor, they remain poor. So all of those things are the case. But in terms of the Wall Street Journal, obviously, it's an employer's paper um, and an article in that paper a few years ago. The way they think about it, not the way I think about it, but the way they think about it is employer costs, right? I think of it as workers' wages, but they think of it as employer costs. And, you know, when you look at it in the Northeast, where there aren't uh, very many or indeed any in, the, in New England and south to Pennsylvania, um, there, uh, there are... The costs of the total compensation package, according to the Wall Street Journal, are $69,000 a year. That would include wages, benefits of all kinds, pensions, things like that. Whereas in the South, uh, it comes out to something like $15,000, less than that, $54,000 Well, that's considerable. That's considerable. Well, the plaintiffs are asking the Supreme Court to strike down the public sector's unions right in California to collect agency fees. Now, with the I, I don't recall the name of the decision where uh, elite, uh, Supreme Court Justice Alito had uh, re- pared down the union dues that could be uh, collected from all workers in a, a group. That, uh, but now what is remaining is the obligation to pay for the agency fees. Unions say that doing so, if, uh, if, if agency fees went away, that this would create a class of free riders who benefit from union representation, but they don't pay for it. And I, I think it's quite striking that um, for reading up on this, Justice Scalia would be the swing vote for his opinion uh, in 1991, where he acknowledged the need for mandatory fees to address free ridership. So what's the general wisdom of the pulse of the Supreme Court at this time, Keith? Well, well, I mean, I think that is the general wisdom. I mean, uh, Alito basically invited this uh, in the decision of Harris versus Quinn, which was a narrower scope um, about healthcare workers in Illinois sometime last year. That's a decision I was thinking. Yeah, last year or year before. um, Alito basically even though the general issue of what are called agency fees, which is basically um, the fees that people pay in order to benefit from the the collective bargaining, and I can explain that with an example from my own Yes, please union. do. I wish you would. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, our union had um, agency fees starting in 2000. This is the University of, of California American Federation Teacher, the That's University right. Council American Federation Teachers. And yes. we're going to talk a lot about that in the second half of this interview. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, for us, for example, our wages, um, the union existed, but we didn't have agency fees. And in the period before agency fees, over a 10-year period between like... Well, it's like 93 to 2003 or 1990 to 2000. In that period, our wages went, the minimum wages went 
for first year lecturers went from about $25,000 to $30,000, not very much of an increase at all. And since then, since 2000 or 2003, uh, the minimum that can be paid to a first year lecturer has gone from 30000 to $48,000. Okay. And that is an increase that has been about, over the course of that time period, about 4.5% per year. So the 1.5%, the which are agency fees that are paid to the union to pay for its costs to negotiate those excellent wage increases over that period, those um, are something that obviously is more than offset um, in terms of that. Right, by that payout yeah. for the dues. Well, so the California voters have a history of opposing efforts to reduce the cloud of unions. It's sort of a kind of a serial thing. It's every so many years there's another proposition on the ballot with the alliances forming on each side of this case. And you've talked a little bit about the ones that are supporting the, the Friedrichs, the plaintiffs. Uh, is So we're talking about it's, it's about undermining the political leverage of one of, of the of labor in the political process. Or is it dissolving collective bargaining or both? It's, I mean, it's it's there's a lot at stake here. Which there's there's a tremendous amount at stake. I mean, when this uh, went through, when Scott Walker pushed this through in Wisconsin, um, that uh, the which seemed unbelievable, he could do that. Yeah, well, in I a mean, place like Wisconsin, and there was obviously a huge fight back against it, but it was finally it was a defeat. He prevailed. For labor. Yeah, it was a defeat. Um, and we don't have time to discuss the strategy there, but you know there was there was definitely a defeat there, and that defeat. Um, in the years following that, it led to a decrease of nearly 30% in terms of the number of paying dues-paying members in unions in um, Wisconsin. And I think we could see something similar uh, over over the whole country, if that were the case. Right, right. The, the, the template's been used. The, the ALEC, the uh, American Legislative Executive Council, has been working the same template. States, and it may be the same... Uh, components participating in carrying out the strategy in Wisconsin are those that are working to putting together the plaintiff's case in Frederick Friedrichs. I think they're probably the same usual suspects here. It so. is. I mean, you know, these are people like the, the Koch brothers who are known for supporting right wing causes and they are people who for whom millions and millions of dollars is couch change. You know, like to me, if I find 10 bucks in my couch, I'm at an economic level where $10, you know, I could lose it or not lose it. But for them, literally millions and millions of dollars does makes no difference in their life. Although the way that they deploy that money makes a huge and negative impact on the workers, millions of workers in the United States. So I just want to remind listeners that on January 16th, the oral arguments will be heard on Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. And pay attention, the California Attorney General is joining the uh, defendants, the, the California Teachers Association. And there's, um, I guess there's a little slate of hand that there there weren't any, um, there weren't any uh, challenges on the way up. It's not the usual kind of uh, ruling on the lower courts this this was an expedited review here and i'm just i also want to get if, if alito knows what scalia is going to do he wouldn't have um they wouldn't have taken up this case if they didn't already have some idea of of the votes here so i i just don't know what well, if we can take scalia's agency su fees support at face value from earlier uh days and and especially with the kind of political dynamic uh, going on in the supreme court it's it's really it's up in the air. 
It is up in the air. I mean, I, there's a couple things to say about the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I think that, you know, obviously it is, uh, it can be, you know, tremendously reactionary body and it's inherently, you know, undemocratic, obviously, for with lifetime appointments. Sort of by design. <laughs> but... Um, at the same time, it's not a body that is immune to political pressure. I mean, if we look at the, the history of the struggle for gay marriage over the past 15, 20 years, the, it's been remarkable. It's been remarkable. I and mean, it's not because of, you know, the good heartedness of the justices of the Supreme Court that we had that decision in June of last year. It's because people fought hard and they made it pretty difficult for that decision to not go through. And so, I mean, it's not like they're, you know, obviously there's a great deal of power in the Supreme Court and it is something that where there should be a legal prong to the strategy of how we resist it. But it's also the case that resistance from below and the, the very, very hard work of gay rights activists made a tremendous difference in terms of that decision for gay marriage. And I think that the same could be said if unions actually did strong organizing to fight against Friedrichs, we could have a, a similar result, I think. Well, Keith, I just want to interject, the, though, the thought, though, that Justice Kennedy has, it's from familiarity with his gay colleagues, that, that is a, a kind of a heart, a heartful sort of uh, aspect. And I, I think that had as much to do with any kind of mobilization from interest groups to prevail upon the Supreme Court to, to have the majority rule in favor of, uh, make, of making legal uh, same-sex marriage around the country. So it, uh, so I, political organization has its, has its part, but I, I think there's, and I don't know how much familiarity we can count on Supreme Court justices uh, with as close uh, intimates of theirs that are benefiting from uh, agent fees and, and leveling the playing field for labor. So uh, that's, that's why I'm wondering what's up in the air. Now, uh, for those of you who've just tuned in on Ask Leader at KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Keith Danner, a lecturer in composition at UCI and a labor activist advancing the case of adjunct professors, also known as lecturers, through his affiliation with the University Council of the American Federation of Teachers. And that is my pivot to the other topic. We turn to the case for lecturers on the UC campuses. Maybe some of you saw the rally uh, with the Whoville folks uh, at the, the Flag Pavilion here at UCI last Friday. Keith, let's talk about this class of faculty professionals shouldering a, a generous, uh, increasingly generous load of class instruction, maybe up to of two-thirds, I think. Would you briefly explain what contingency work is and the trend of increasingly more lecturers being hired to replace full-time tenured faculty? Well, once upon a time in the uh, University of California system. In the West. Yeah, exactly. There, there weren't lecturers. Um, it, uh, classes were taught by professors. And um, professors have a teaching load that is half that of lecturers. But over the course of time, the university um, began to behave more and more like uh, a corporation and was more and more concerned with things like cost cutting. And one of the ways that they did that was to hire 
lecturers. Now, initially, what they would do is they would hire lecturers for a few years, and then when their wages went up or something, they would just get rid of them. And this is a practice that's known as churning, where you would um, hire somebody, and then when it seemed like their wages were too high, then you just hire somebody else. Now, the union um, has gotten rid of a lot of the worst of those practices, but there are still campuses in the UC system who, despite explicit prohibitions against churning in our contract, still do this. Um, you know, when we when we were about to get some kind of job security, they uh, they just churn us churn us out. Now, I it is not the case here at UC Irvine, but um, UC San Diego, for example, is known as a terrible offender of just. Wow, so there's a range of practices. When you're talking about the, like with the demonstration on Friday, it was t it's talking the University of California Office of the President, but there's variation among campuses. And so uh, that's important for us to know that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you can have, uh, you know, we were. Uh, negotiate. We were we negotiate with the UC Office of the President, and we um, were not happy with the way in which they were negotiating most recently. Which is why we had that demonstration um, last Friday on the UC who stole Christmas. Um, in particular, their their most recent uh, wage offer was pathetic. It was I think one point five percent in a number of different years over over five years when when that wouldn't even keep up with inflation. It was, you know, quite low. And also nothing. I mean, one thing that people should understand that is just shocking, I think, about the University of California in terms of its treatment of lecturers. I mean, many people, you know, maybe um, seniors who are about to get jobs graduating from UC Irvine, they might say, okay, I'm going to get a job. Thank you. And uh, they're going to they're going to get a job and they will have what's called a probationary period. Yeah, let's talk about that. It's unlike any probationary period in any other workplace setting I can think. It's six years. It's outrageous, really. I mean, you know, you mostly, mostly when you get a job like that and you have a probationary period, you'll have six months, maybe a year. As far, but as far, I don't know of any other place, even among the most rapacious capitalist corporations, where you have a six-year um, probationary period. And in fact, this probationary period is such that when we talk to the University of California representatives, um, when we're doing filing grievances, we had people who lost their jobs last year. At what year? Um, Some they, of them. They were at different years. They were anywhere between one and four years. They of, were going strong in the fourth year. And uh, let's break that down. What? Oh, all right, your grievances to the to the office, and then let's talk about what what can happen in that intervening six year period. Right. So we classroom. were talking. We were talking to the the representatives of the university, and we said, "Look, these people had." no indication whatsoever that there was a problem with their teaching and then they were like oh they lost their jobs and the representative of the university said no they did not lose their jobs what are they, they did not lose their jobs because they don't have jobs they have oh. a, they have a one-year contract oh because it's and probation they, they, they don't have a job right so the idea that of course no one who has been working here for a year two years three years feels like oh, I am temporary, until they are then, in fact, temporary. So that's why the contingent word's used. That's really, it really fits. Absolutely. Wow. So the more I checked it out, the more I realized there could be a bump anywhere along that six-year road that could be, tell us about where where this has an impact on what the the lecturer can do in the classroom and what the, what kind of a, 
what 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 does a bump look like in terms of you know a student um, contributing to the ending of that probationary period? Well, I mean, one thing that can happen is that you can, because it's even worse than that, some people don't get hired for a year. Some people get hired on a quarter-by-quarter quarter basis. Wow. So, for example, I know of uh, one person in particular, and there, she is an example of many, many people who this past uh, quarter had three courses teaching academic English, that is to say, um, English as a second language um, to students who need help with that particular skill before they enter into the freshman English requirement. And they were told that it was all The but lecture, not the students. The, yeah. uh, sorry. The lecture was told that it was all but a surety that they would have work uh, in, the, in, the win in the winter quarter as well. So they had three courses in the fall. And then just a week ago, two weeks ago, they were told that there was no work for them in the next quarter. So there's no, there's no security whatsoever. Now, what does that do? It means that lecturers then, who are in that situation of quarter-by-quarter quarter appointment or appointments that are half-time or three-quarters time, those lecturers have to, when they get an offer from a community college, they have to take it. So... The community colleges are actually somewhat better organized than the University of California, and they actually offer their classes more ahead of time. And so you say yes. You say, you know what? You've got three classes for me. I'll take them. It's a surety. Okay, I'll take them. They're, they're paid, actually, much less than the University of California classes are, but I have to take them. And then you get offered one, two, or three classes. Now, if you're offered three classes at the University of California... That's a good thing, right? Because it's more, but now you're teaching six classes and it's a writing class and you are stretched to the breaking point. And every student at every campus must suffer from that. Or alternatively, your life suffers, your family suffers, your health suffers. So that's the kind of thing that can happen with these temporary and quarter-by-quarter quarter appointments. And let us you've talked about the English as a second language and the other aspects of the, the pedagogy that you're involved with in these writing courses is that you've got a really a high-maintenance, a high-need kind of student population. So it's really not comparable to what maybe a regular faculty member's interactions and uh, needs that are, need to be that are uh, being addressed in the classroom. So that, that's one. But that it's been brought to my attention there along the six year probationary road you're on mm -hmm. that you could get a disgruntled uh, student who has has it in for you in some way, or maybe there's an ideological sort of thing they didn't like in your bringing critical thinking to the form of the class, and they write one poison pen recommend uh, a ref not a reference a uh, an evaluation of your course, then uh, you're you're burned. You've been doing great for for two, three, four, five years, but that disgruntled student could end your stretch. You're extremely vulnerable. You're extremely vulnerable. I mean, again, the thing is that this is very, very uh, variable. It depends on basically the goodwill of the local chair. So the department chair or your supervisor. And 
obviously the you, lecture director yeah the union never and unionized workers never want to depend on the goodwill of management that doesn't mean that an individual manager might not have some goodwill and not that we don't welcome it but that what we want is we want to have both a contract that is negotiated to protect workers and a membership of the union that is active so that that contract can be enforced so the we, I think we need to look generally, so a more helicopter view here is that um, the Atlantic Monthly reported in their September issue that's a shift toward funding uh, more administrators while devoting less than a third of the revenue on edu- on instruction itself. So that uh, can you get just briefly because we have a lot, we got a few more things to wrap up uh, to say in the short time remaining. Uh, this this trend in uh, looks like you're loading. We're loading the the offset of the cost of education on lecturers' backs in um, steaming full ahead here in college institutions. Yeah, I mean, I think the university would say, well, you know, the, uh, lecturers are well paid. You know, our, our minimum salary is $48,000. But if you're, that's if you teach eight classes in a year. And in some cases, it's if you teach nine classes in a year. Again, it varies. But let's say you only get offered six classes. Well, now you're down to $35,000 a year, and good luck trying to live in Irvine, Los Angeles, San Francisco on $35,000 a year. So, I mean, the the university will sort of say, oh, as if it was their idea when really it was a hard-fought union battle to get that wage increase in the first place. Um, You know, they'll say that the salaries are good. And it is true that over the past 20, 30 years, there has been an increase in basically the top heaviness of the University of California. More and more six, six-figure six salaries at the top. So what does your compensation package look like? Do, are you getting other benefits, or is this it's just strictly the salary? It depends. Uh, if you are over 50%, you, you do get okay. health care. Uh, and if you're not, then you don't. Um, we always seek to try and get people appointments above 50% just because of that benefits right. That's level. That's what the union's working on. Yeah. Okay. So are, you're, are you at 50% right now? No. I, my my uh, position is a good one. I, I actually am what's called a post... I went through my probationary period. Oh, you, oh congratulations. Yeah, so you I, made uh, it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and what that means is... Um, the university would have to give me one year's notice or one year's pay if they wanted to get rid of me. Now, really, my job security is that I teach eight courses for less than the cost of a professor teaching four courses. So my job is secure because of my level of exploitation. So, I mean, some people are going to say, well, the, the faculty have... They have their research along with their instruction, so they've got that. That's the, the sort of professional burden they carry. But you you can say you have a a a, a population that rec- is very high need. It, it's a sort of a, a little bit of a parochial kind of a writing skill kind of a thing. So that th- these kinds of uh, demands on you as an instructor can perhaps balance out when we're comparing the positions. I think so. I mean, the fact that our you know our teaching load is double that of latter faculty. I mean, I should say I don't think that. Uh, ladder faculty are underworked. I mean, I think that ladder faculty work very, very hard. Yeah, right, right. But um, okay. so it's not that is not the case. It's just that the 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 situation of lecturers as a class is something that we should be detailing. Well, let's wrap this up with what the terms are 
for that you'd like to see the University of California Office of the President uh, adopt that, that you were talking about on Friday, starting with the third year merit review versus the six year? Yeah, I mean, we think that certainly um, the, if the university is employing us for three years, there is no, they can tell that we are excellent. You know, their argument is, well, we don't know, we need flexibility. And you don't know after three years. I, that's a hard one to keep a straight face through. Uh, it is. A lot of things they say are hard to keep a straight face through. All right. Okay. So that's one of them. The other is that, you know, we really really believe that everyone at the University of California, even part-time lecturers, should get the basic right of Social Security. The university avoids paying Social Security to hundreds of part-time lecturers, which means they have basically nothing. They're, they're less than half-time, so they don't have a pension from the UC, and the university refuses to pay their Social Security uh, taxes through a loophole that's complicated and old, and um, we think that that sh you know, should end. There's also, when we're talking about how students can uh, wield a lot of power in uh, probationary workers, uh, contingent workers, you, you also have a, a, a provision, student evaluations that are considered like 30% of the review. So perhaps, what was, what's the current, what's the status quo? How much is it figure Well, now? right now, all it says is that student evaluations cannot be the only thing that the university uses to um, evaluate us. Um, there's a lot of studies that show that there can be various problems with student evaluations um, in terms of whether, mostly in terms of gender, frankly. And um, so we want to reduce the significance of that and make the university consider other things like teaching portfolio, observations, things like that. Well, so in wrapping up, Keith Danner, uh, tell us where people can follow it up. Who's who's the contact person? I mean, Andrew Tonkovich put himself out there with the organizing it. So who who do people go to in terms of people besides going to the ucaft.org website? Well, I'll mention two things. Um, there's one website for more background on the Friedrichs case. There's a website called America Works Together. If you just Google America Works Together, you'll find that. And then people can also contact me. I mean, we've had a lot of students come up and say, what can I do? And I want to offer my email as a place where they can contact me. It's danner63 at gmail.com. Again, that's danner, D-A-N-N-E-R, 63 at gmail.com. All right. Thank you very much. I want to thank you, Keith. It's been good having you on the show. Thank you, Claudia. My guest was Keith Danner. He's a composition lecturer at UCI and as a labor activist with the University Council of the American Federation of Teachers supporting adjunct professors in the UC system. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Charlie Bleck, who is the Orange County chair of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence. Stay tuned. Don't go away. There's power in a factory, power in the line. Thanks for joining us. That was Billy Bragg. There is power in a union. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Charlie Bleck. He's the Orange County Chair of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence. He is the founding president of the California chapters and continues to serve as president of our local chapter. 
He's been honored for his work by Loyola Law School, Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, Violence Prevention Coalition Orange County, and his article, Our Second Amendment, was published by the American Bar Association. In the past, I've failed to mention that Charlie completed his BA at USC and his law degree at Loyola Marymount University. His practice, his day job is estate planning, and he generally puts aside the work to bring us to the Brady campaign uh, latest. And uh, he's been in the media. Toronto pulled him up with a, an interview a couple of days ago. So we're glad he's coming to our media platform here. Every interview I do with Charlie, I take stock of the loss of their son, Matthew, who was killed by a Saturday night special at a burglary gone very bad in New York City. Now it's, is it 20 years ago, Charlie? 1994, 21 years, 21 years before. Each time a public attack occurs, it injures survivors like the Blecks. Charlie, welcome back to the show on a string of very somber notes. I appreciate the opportunity, Claudia, and I always enjoy having an opportunity to chat with you about something as important as saving lives. And you're right, when we got the San Bernardino news, uh, it really depressed us and depressed our family, and it's still a real shock. And uh, it's just the, the problem we have is that we just, our goal is that other families not walk in our shoes. And unfortunately, we know the angst and the anger and the depression that these families are going to go through. And it's very, very sobering. Well, Charlie, if 96 persons succumb to gun violence every day in America, you know, that means roughly 20,160 have been killed by a gun since you were last on this show. Wow. That, that is an amazing statistic, Claudia. So in this, in his address on Sunday evening, President Obama started with restricting availability of assault rivals. Was that a pragmatic move to capture the public mood in the aftermath of the San Bernardino killings? I thought he had a couple of good ideas, uh, and I'm pleased that our president has finally taken up the mantra as to what this series, this the particular situation is. Uh, that, of course, and then the no-fly, no-buy type of uh, um, like initiative, I think, has some uh, some merit to that also. But uh, what I would really like to try and chat about today was something very close to what's happened on your campus. Uh, approximately a year ago when I was there for a UCI support for yes. solidarity with the UC Santa Barbara folks. Right. And what struck me, Claudia, was that they didn't want to chat about any kind of action item. It was just the only phrase was we want to show solidarity. And if that still is what's going on at campus, they can do that because we were able to enact an excellent law this last year, and our governor signed it into law. And beginning January 1, we have a law called the Gun Violence Restraining Order. And I'd love to take Please. a minute and let everybody know exactly what it is, if I may. Yes, indeed. This is the time and the place. All righty. Well, what happened in Santa Barbara was we had the family, and the family notified the police department. They knew their son was a danger to himself and to others. And because at that time the bar was he was not adjudicated as mentally ill or incompetent, they had basically no action they could take. This new law basically says if you are at a risk to yourself or to others and you do not have a firearm prohibition, if you're an immediate family member 
or a law enforcement officer. So immediate family members, law enforcement, now will have access to our court system to get a restraining order to remove guns from that person's possession. They would not be able to possess or to buy firearms. And if it's really an urgent situation, we can go into court, or the family or the law enforcement folks can go into court and get a temporary order with a with not only a restraining order, but a warrant to search the premises to remove those weapons for immediately up to 21 days under the temporary order so that we have an opportunity to address the issue. Claudia, if we had had a law like that, Santa Barbara would not have happened. It would have prevented it. It would have prevented it. And the key is that come January 1, that will be the law in the state of California, and we have to get out there and we have to let everybody know what's available and how to have, how to have, make it happen. Uh, the California Judicial Council has created forms so that you have access to our court system to obtain that form of restraining order. And it's so vital, and I think in the last several years, I think it's the greatest step forward from a policy standpoint to help us save lives. So, Charlie, where does that template, how do people get a hold of that? We need to get that in everybody's hands because we, do. we don't fact, know when that's January gonna... 1, we're going to roll out, well, we're rolling out a campaign right now to educate uh, social workers, law enforcement, and just the general public as to the availability. Uh, the Judicial Council has created forms so that there's access to the court system, and uh, it's going to be just a real lifesaver, Claudia. In other words, the key now is not adjudicated as mentally ill, or the key now is that you are a risk to yourself or to others, and that could be uh, temporary depression, that could be uh, an alcohol abuse, that could be uh, a drug situation, that could be a number of items that previously in our law did not allow us to take action to remove that lethal weapon from those dangerous hands, and now we have that tool come January 1. Well, that's a considerable lowering of the threshold. It is, and it's so much more practical for us to be able to help prevent these types of mass shootings. Um, I can't believe that uh, folks, if they had been aware of the San Bernardino, and if we had had that law, and if somebody had stepped forward and said, I think these people are a risk to themselves or to others, we could have gotten a warrant, and we could have had a search of those premises. Uh, it just opens up so many avenues for law enforcement to help us prevent these types of tragedies in the future. Well, I, I can see where maybe even all mandatory uh, reporters need to, to know about this form. So um, it's it's. I just want to make sure we know how those forms are going to be. Uh, yes, it's called the it's Gun counts- Violence Restraining Order Bill. And come January, we've had the every every time we have access to the courts, the California Judicial Council puts together forms, and these forms are been they have been published, they have been vetted, okay. and come January one, they will be in full force and available to the general public, and in. You have to be an immediate family member or law enforcement. So if you're not immediate a family member, but if you notify law enforcement and they investigate and they see the need, that will create an opportunity to have that restraining order. So like a mandatory reporter, uh, uh, would a neighbor be able to or an educator? No, a neighbor cannot. The neighbor can alert law enforcement, and if law enforcement sees that's the situation. I mean. Okay, so that's the connection. It, it can't One step removed from a family member, uh, some other person. But, but that, but 
that has to be now, the judiciously. The forms themselves will not be available until the law takes effect January right. one. Right, that's clear. That's clear. But the key is to notify let people and be aware of the fact that they previously, if they did not have access, they will now. And like I say, from a policy standpoint, mm. Claudia, it's a major step forward for us. Well, does this template from the state of California, is, it, is the Brady campaign uh, moving it around to other states for adoption? We certainly, uh, we've had five or six different states ask us about the law, and uh, one of the organizations in California that grew out of the um, mass shooting up at Cal- 101 California Street way back in 1994 also, the uh, Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, they have put together a... Um, network that uh, creates an advantage throughout so and one of the reasons we're very confident that this is going to be constitutional is that connecticut has a similar law and by allowing us to have the court issue the order you have the due process and you have all of the various constitutional safeguards involved in this particular item so um, not only is it a sound policy standpoint, but we've taken the steps to make sure that it's constitutionally valid. Okay, to look at how this is operationalized, let's look at Connecticut. Let's look at Sandy Hook, which is now three years old, coming up on December 14. It's amazing to think it's three years now. It is, that isn't it? How, so who would have been the... Uh, we know that uh, Adam Lanza's mother wasn't... In, she was not going to be one uh, Connecticut in Connecticut is... In, you know, took a broader type of approach than what we okay, did in California. Connecticut allowed neighbors to be able to report. Okay. In California, we have limited it to immediate family and law enforcement, but the key here is that if a neighbor or somebody can eyes uh, law enforcement, but the people who will have access to the court system are simply immediate family members or law enforcement. And like I said, in Santa Barbara, Bless their hearts, that family knew that there was going to be uh, an issue. They knew that their son was going to go off the deep end. They alerted law enforcement, and law enforcement felt their hands were tied because of the judicial standard at that time. We have now created a policy where there can be an action item. The court can issue a warrant. We can ban the possession of and the purchase of, and they can go in and they can take possession of those weapons. And that is so much better off for all of us. So it gives the the law enforcement uh, officials a, a a list of things that they are um, entitled. That they can alert law that, enforcement to, to the imminent danger to that person or to that person pre- presents to others that would qualify for law enforcement to go into court if an immediate family member does not. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, but in the case uh, in Santa Barbara, the the law enforcement officers went to that front door. They went inside, but. Well, actually, they went to the front door, and that was it. And they they, they did a cursory discussion. Under this law, they would have been mandated to go in with a warrant and remove the weapons and take this much further. And they could clean out the whole apartment. Exactly. They they wouldn't have to leave until they had searched everything. That's that's, correct. Uh, That warrant part of this is is a key element. Okay. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Charles Bleck the Orange County Chair of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence here on Ask a Leader, 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web around the world on KUCI.org. We're talking about the 
too soon to be in effect. The gun violence restraining order, uh, January 1st, will be in effect in the state of California. And you say five to six other states are looking at it, but it's not necessarily being adopted yet. And the key is what our governor just said just a couple of days ago about the overall. You have to understand that in the last 20-plus years, we have enacted more than 50 laws in California aimed at prevention, and that's why our gun mortality rate has decreased 52%, Claudia, which is 24% greater than the national average. So what we are doing here in California works, but we still have loopholes that we have to close. So the bottom line is that uh, that's why we need help at the national level. Um, Arizona and Nevada, virtually no gun laws at all, and uh, there's a annual gun show up in Reno. And as we know, Reno has just crossed the border from, from us in California. And we have folks that go to that gun show just to be observers, and they report back to us that 90% of the license plates in the parking lot for that Reno gun really? show are California license plates. And there's no questions asked there about the availability and purchase, no background checks. Uh, that's why we need a national bill. And we have a California House member, Jackie Spear, who has now spearheading this. Um, and may I talk about that Please. for a minute? Yes, it's House yes, yes. Bill H.R. 3411, and basically it calls for universal background checks, just like we have in California, plus it calls for the reporting of lost or stolen handguns. And uh, the reason why this is important is that uh, all of our 26 chapters here in uh, California, together with our chapters throughout the U.S., have decided that will be a national priority bill. And, Claudia, what's frustrating is we we have the um, reports that 80 to 90 percent of the American public want universal background checks. They see it work in California. We've had it in California since 1991, and yet the House and the Senate will not bring a nice, clean bill like H.R. 3411 onto the floor for a vote, and that's just plain criminal. Yes. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I mean, unfortunately, what's our Orange County like? legislatures of the uh, Republican Party are uh, of a persuasion where they're just turning a deaf ear to the general public. And uh, that's why I wanted to make sure that I got that out on your show today. Absolutely. Uh, if you have an opportunity to talk to your federal folks, uh, our federal senator, Senator Boxer and... Um, and Feinstein. And Feinstein have been true champions for us. But uh, our House members, especially from here in, uh, in Orange, Orange County, just don't seem to understand the need or the particular focus of this bill, and it's amazing to me that they can't, because I remember um, Senator Warren Orrin Hatch several years ago getting up and saying, gee, if we had um, background checks at gun shows, it would be the death knell for gun shows, and Claudia, all you have to do when the gun show comes to Orange County Fairgrounds is drive by the parking lot and see the overflow parking, and it hasn't affected sales in California one iota, except to keep dangerous weapons out of dangerous hands. So if you're a good, law-abiding citizen, having a background check for any transfer of a firearm makes sense. And uh, we need that on a federal level because of the uh, lack of any kind of regulation in Nevada and Arizona. Well, that it's that's boots on the ground. They're boots at the show, to, boots in the parking lot to to find out uh, what the the actual market 
setting is at those gun shows. Um, so that's a real vital bit of information. And if Orrin Hatch, where he's centered politically, is supportive of background check, does, is, is he... No, a, he's not supportive. He said that would be a death knell. It was death knell. I'm and sorry. he's the Utah the, senator. Okay. And one of the major... Uh, people who come to Orange County for the gun show, entrepreneurs, is based in Utah. So what I'm saying is that 40% of our gun transfers in the U.S. are through gun shows, which are totally unregulated, and that's a huge loophole. We need to close that loophole. We need universal background checks on all gun transfers and sales, Claudia, like we have in California. I misinterpreted the Orrin Hatch piece about trying to... Yeah, I was slamming him. uh, Right, right, right. I I see. So um, you have convened, there was convened at the the California Strategy Session on Friday. Well, that's just a nickname that I gave a number of groups through in California that from time to time we have conference calls and we strategize on what's going on. And I'm glad that I hear from other parts of the state because if I had to rely only on Orange County news, I would get very depressed. So what uh, did they have to say? Now that that we have uh, our president on board, there are areas in the California law that we need to address, and we've been talking about the Gabby Giffords uh, situation in Arizona and how that shooter had a 30-round magazine, and when he went to reload, he was overpowered. In California, we have banned the sale or transfer of large-capacity magazines, but we have not addressed the possession. And the San Bernardino shooter... uh, The possession becomes quite a point because people will say, well, what's the difference between 10 rounds or 15 rounds or 30 rounds? Well, if you're hit with a bullet that was number 13 or 14 or 20, it makes a big difference. And, Claudia, when we tolerate 30 and 50-round magazines, all we're saying is we're sanctioning the hunting of other human beings, and we can do better. All right, we can. um, Thank you for bringing that that vital update on that where the strategy It's a shame that we have so much to talk about but we're making progress Claudia we really are. So we'll the, so we'll get back to when that bill is uh, formulated for the California legislature uh, assembly coming up and then we'll we'll be I watching I think we're going to have two or three really super bills come 2016 plus uh, we have not, Brady has not yet taken a position on Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom's initiative, but as soon as it's vetted and it's put in final form and we have an opportunity to review it, uh, we will be able to take a position. But at first blush, I think the Lieutenant Governor has created some really good points that we need to consider. So as a program in the future, when the, the 2016 initiative by our Lieutenant Governor uh, gets the number of signatures to put it on the ballot, I think that would be an excellent opportunity to discuss that. Well, I wanted just to wrap up with an observation I heard in an interview with David Chancer. He's with the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. And and he was talking about the thresholds. Now, with the threshold of whether a law could stop an attack or whether it could, uh, he's thinking lowering it to where the law would at least reduce the risks. I think that's really important. Now, with the California gun violence restraining order, you're able to address that higher threshold of preventing an attack. But the, all of these measures here to lessen the uh, the sale and the ownership of large capacity magazines and other you know intensively high, uh, high firepower those get to the reducing of the risk which as you said the 13th or 14th uh, 
bullet victim uh, in in a high capacity uh, magazine fired off that um, that that matters greatly in uh, what we can do here. Uh, you have to understand that what we're doing is we're taking a public health approach to this and while well, you and I are talking about the the these particular items we also need to address and we do that the unfortunate situation with the uh, suicides and unintentional and there's so many things we can do in this area to reduce the risk and and that's the whole key. Well, Charlie Bleck, Orange County president of the Brady Prevention for uh, uh, Gun Violence. I want to thank you for coming back on the show on this somber next uh on the 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 heels of another somber uh, development that we're going to be chewing on and swallowing mighty hard. I want to thank you for... What I want to fight against, Claudia, is that I don't want us to think that this is going to become commonplace and we just accept it. Well, but that's what it's become. I mean, the last time we interviewed... We can educate and do, and I'm pleased that in California we're doing that, and we now have to bubble it up to the federal level. And uh, anytime we have an opportunity to talk to our Orange County House members, we need to remind them that California has good laws. Why aren't they championing it at the national level? Charlie Black, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Claudia. I appreciate it. We are so glad to have Charlie on today. Charlie Black, as I said, Orange County president of the chapter for uh, Brady Campaign for uh, um, Prevention of Gun Violence. Uh, Next week, we're going to have Amal Alachkar. She's a UCI researcher. Uh, on uh, in pharmacology and she'll return to the program for the full hour to speak as a Syrian refugee. She'll offer a privileged account updating us on what the global displacement looks like and feels like. Talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening. <laughs>